0: Former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor, and best-selling author of the book *Mistreated*, while we think we're getting. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor, and best-selling author of the book *Mistreated*, while we think we're getting good health healthcare and why
1: we're usually wrong. And I am Jeremy Corr, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry
0: that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype.
1: Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com.
2: Welcome to New Books in Medicine on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Monique Dufour. We're about to hear my interview with Joanna Kempner, author of Not Tonight, Migraine and the Politics of Gender and Health. It was published in 2014 by the University of Chicago Press. Joanna is Assistant Professor of Sociology at Rutgers University, where she is also affiliated with the Institute for Health, Healthcare Policy, and Aging Research. I was especially interested in talking with Joanna because Not Tonight is a book that succeeds on many levels. It's a serious work of scholarship. It has a voice and a point of view, and it also sets out to make a difference in our understanding about migraine, an issue that has vital and visceral stakes in the daily lives of the millions who suffer from them. In our interview, Joanna was also especially interesting and articulate about her writing process. Um, She shared how good books like hers are often the product of a process in which the writer is open to the unexpected and is willing to use the research process to revise her ideas, to discover the right questions, and to find the real story. I hope you enjoy our interview. Welcome to New Books in Medicine on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Monique Dufour. Today, I'm really excited to welcome Joanna Kempner. She's the author of Not Tonight, Migraine and the Politics of Gender and Health. Joanna is an assistant professor of sociology at Rutgers, and her research investigates the intersection of medicine, science, politics, gender, and the body. Not Tonight is her first book. You can also follow her on Twitter at Joanna Kempner. Joanna, welcome to the New Books Network.
3: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
2: Oh, we're really glad to have you. I loved your book and I was really excited to talk to you about it once I read it. Um, To help our readers kind of get to know you a little bit, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your scholarly interests and areas? Sure.
3: Well, um, I, um, my original interest has always been in gender. I've really always been thought of myself as a a feminist scholar. Um, But I, Also, I have always had this strong interest in medicine. In fact, I originally wanted to be a doctor Mm -hmm. uh, before I discovered sociology. I didn't realize sociology was a thing. (laughs) Um, And so I was able, I realized in graduate school that I was able to bring these two things together. And and so my work now really bridges um, medicine uh, with gender and politics, uh, which are my three loves. And so when people um, ask me, I often say I I study the politics of women's health. Uh Uh-huh. And so, But you are a trained sociologist. I am a trained sociologist,
2: yes. And does this um, book come out of your dissertation at all? It does. This was my dissertation. I started it in graduate school. Uh Uh-huh. So it's been a long road in realizing this really well-written book. Can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in migraine? Absolutely.
3: Um, So before I I realized I wanted to be a medical sociologist, I was just a a graduate student taking a class in medical sociology. Uh Uh-huh. And that was the first time I really learned that there was this amazing social science research on diseases. Mm -hmm. And we, in that class, we read about all sorts of disorders. There were books on epilepsy, on breast cancer, AIDS, chronic fatigue syndrome. And I started to wonder about migraine, Uh, mostly, I think, because migraine runs in my family. So my paternal grandmother always had headaches, and my mother had terrible migraines. The entire time I was growing up, I just remember her being in bed all all the time. Mm And I had migraines too. I started having headaches when I was a little girl around age five. And I really understood that migraines could be an often word devastating. And I truly understood migraines were highly stigmatizing because I had spent so much of my life trying to convince doctors and employers and even my friends that, you know, this pain I had was real nice. and it was um, – you know, it had a significant impact on how I, I lived. And I also felt like people often thought I was being hysterical or hypochondriacal. So I, I, I had all of these experiences that I was bringing into medical sociology and it was all kind of swirling around in my mind. Um, and then I was, I was, remember sitting in my, um, in my apartment uh, and I, was listening to a local NPR radio station. It was a call-in show, and they had a. The topic was headaches, was migraines, and they had a guest named Stephen Silverstein. Uh, he is the director of the Jefferson Headache Clinic here in Philadelphia, and that clinic is the a world-renowned headache clinic. Um, and I heard him say something like, "We used to think that migraines were a disorder of neurotic women who couldn't face up to life. We now know that it's a neurobiological disease." Uh-huh. And, uh, I couldn't believe it. like it was the first time this was about fifteen years ago. I had never heard anybody say anything like that before. And you know what was so funny is I actually went to him. He was my doctor like uh-huh. like eight years before that, but i he didn't say that to me then. <laughs> I, <laughs> I felt vindicated. I was I just felt completely relieved. Uh-huh. and then an interesting thing happened. Um, it was a call-in show, so the first caller to the show was really worried. He said that he had migraines his whole life, but now he thought that something was wrong with his brain. And I thought this was fascinating. So Silberstein said, well, this isn't something to worry about that something that was wrong, that he, that if something was wrong with his brain was a good thing because it proved that his pain was real. And I thought this was so fascinating. Here I was relieved that I had a neurobiological disease and this caller had a completely rational reaction, which is that that's actually incredibly frightening. Uh And so I just, I thought that was a fascinating that I would rather have a disease than, you know, be thought of as, as crazy. And then I started to wondering, wonder what Silberstein was doing there. It it occurred to me that he was trying to use the brain to erase centuries of sexist medical practice. And I wondered whether or not it was working. So that was the moment that I decided that I had to study migraine.
2: Well, that's indeed the story of your book, which is astonishing because that origin narrative is in a nutshell, how your argument as we'll hear throughout this interview unfolds in the book. Um, Let's, let's kind of step away from the beginning part of this book and lead us back to the end point. So, You know, as readers and especially for our graduate students and for uh, fellow academics who aspire to write really good books like this one, you read the book and it's so impressive and it comes to you completely fully formed, you know. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you made this thing. Like, could you tell us a little bit about how you developed the book out of your dissertation into something that really is so coherent and readable?
3: It's wonderful to hear that it comes off as
1: coherent. Uh-huh.
3: As an author, you know, it takes a long time to get to that point, point. and I always tell my students that what you read is are, it, that's people's finished work, uh-huh. and it, it takes many, many drafts and much anguish to get to that <laughs> point. Um, when I and when I started um, studying migraine, I thought I was studying something very different. I thought that the brain was the end of the story. Uh huh. I really thought that the brain was the revolution and I wasn't really sure. I knew gender was going to be important, but I wasn't really sure how it was going to be important. Uh, And it was only maybe like five years later when I started to realize that funding wasn't pouring into headache medicine uh, and things weren't really changing for headache that I thought maybe the narrative wasn't what I thought it was, right? Maybe that it was actually about the failure of neurobiology to, Save migraine, and then even then, it took it took even longer for me to figure out what that all meant and come up with the, the real story um, uh, behind what was happening. I mean, and I think that's fairly typical for people doing this kind of inductive research. Mm-hmm. You know, we we throw ourselves into a field because we we know it's a rich area and there's something that's going to be interesting and fascinating there. But it takes a long time to kind of discern what what it is what what what's the there there
2: yeah did were, we're um did you have any fellow readers that were important in helping you to make that idea writable or clear
3: um yeah i worked uh i i depended a lot on um betsy armstrong at princeton uh-huh uh, who who's written on fetal alcohol syndrome and she's she 's a wonderful uh, feminist uh, sociologist of medicine and science um, and I also work with a writing group and I encourage all scholars to find writing partners who uh, share their interests mm-hmm. and who are willing to be constructive in a, a, in, a in a warm <laughs> friendly way because we need that. We need that as academics. We need somebody. We need people who are willing to engage in our work. um, Who You can give that your really rough work to without feeling anxious.
2: Absolutely. You know, with my writers, I try to tell them to find the right reader at the right time. Sometimes that rough, Thing is not, not something to give your dissertation chair right away, but to cultivate those readers around you who can give you the bad news when you need to hear it early is really helpful. I'm so, I was fishing. I was hoping you were going to say writing group. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm a
3: huge advocate of, of writing groups.
2: Fantastic. Um, and I wanted to just talk a little bit more about the writing process to say, too, that although this book really relies on stories and tells an incredibly engaging narrative, um, as we'll hear, that it's... Really bolstered by extensive research, data, theory. Um, could you talk a little bit about the kinds of methodological skills you needed to learn along the way to write a book like this?
3: Yeah. So the core of the book, the the, the way I started the book was uh, by going to headache con- professional headache conferences. These places where headache doctors met to talk about the research that they you know, that they were, they were conducting and disseminating. And so I was pretty, mm-hmm. at that point, pretty comfortable with ethnography and interview um, research. And, and that, 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 that formed the basis of, of how I collected data. What was more challenging for, for me was the historical work in the book. Cause I'm not a trained historian. Um, and that took, that took quite a, quite a bit longer to get to, to, to learn. Um, and, and so working with historians, really, and having historians read my work and really pushing me to tell a story that uh, was recognizable to historians um, was, was the most challenging thing for me. But also the, it ended up being the part of the process I enjoyed the most. Ah. Oh. Fantastic.
2: Okay, so let's go ahead and open up the book. Um, Your book explores how migraine can simultaneously disrupt so many lives and continue to be questioned and trivialized by the culture at large. In this way, you describe migraine as a contested illness and argue that migraine has a legitimacy deficit. In what ways is migraine a contested illness?
3: So Migraine is contested in terms of its cultural importance. So medicine agrees that migraine is, is is a real diagnosis that migraine exists in a way in which that consensus hasn't formed for other contested illnesses. For example, um, fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome, although there's increasingly more consensus around those diagnoses. Um, So, so migraine is a little further along uh, the, the path um, towards legitimation. Um, but even though uh, medical doctors and policymakers and insurance companies recognize that migraine exists, there is quite a bit of disagreement about how important it is, how much it should be funded. And so the burden that is posed by migraine, that the burden that migraine, um, asserts on the public is really out of sync with how many, how much resources we allocate to it. So let me just give you some examples. Um, according to the world uh, health organization, excuse me, the world health organization, migraine is one of the top 20 causes of disability, um, as expressed as years of healthy life, uh, healthy life lost to disability. So it's a particular measure. Um, Migraine is incredibly prevalent. Twelve uh, percent of adults have episodic migraine. One to two percent of adults have chronic migraine. Um, there are migraine is incredibly expensive. It's uh, costs over thirty billion dollars to the U.S. economy. Um, and yet migraine remains. largely undiagnosed and undertreated. So about 50% of people with migraine don't know they have migraine. Um, Less than 50% of migraine patients actually consult a physician about their migraine. And we have lots of data um, that show that neurologists don't really like to treat migraine. Neurologists are the specialty that by and large isn't responsible for treating migraine. Uh, Meanwhile, the federal government Barely funds migraine. Um, migraine is only receiving about $20 million a year wow. in federal funds for research, which is incredibly out of sync with uh, other dis- disorders. It's relative to its economic impact, the amount of disability it causes, migraine is extraordinarily underfunded. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so what you do when you dive into the book, um, starting with chapter one, is you give us that historical context for the contemporary scene and discourse around migraine. And the first two chapters have great titles. The first one is All in Her Mind. Chapter two, It's All in Her Brain. So in this first chapter, um, It's All in Her Mind, you look back over the last 300 years of migraine, and you focus especially on the biomedical understandings of migraine. Across these changes, you find that there's an important constant, the presumption that certain kinds of people get migraines. So why do you start with this longer history, which is ambitious and I think very concisely told? And could you take us through some of what you see are the key phases of this longer story from the 18th century to the present? Sure. So when
3: I originally looked when I was originally studying migraine, I thought it was a story of, of transformation, of kind of revolutionary change. And that was the narrative that doctors were telling. They were saying, you know, used to, just thinking back to that quote by Silverstein that I heard on the radio, we used to think about migraine as a disorder of hysterical women. Now we think about it as this neurobiological disease. And so I thought I was looking at a paradigm shift. But as I really dove into the history, what I saw instead was a, a lot of... Um, Uh, actually a a lot of, uh, pretty much a lot of similarities across time. So I started, um, by going back to the 19th century, uh, which is where a lot of, um, neurologists began their histories of migraine. And in the 19th century, uh, migraine was understood in terms of a nervous temperament, um, people with um, migraine were talked about as having um, <clears throat> excuse me um, a kind of excitable brain um, acute senses and free imaginations. Uh, they were they were a particular kind of person so I was really wondering where that idea came from and that's what brought me back to the 18th century. In the 18th century is where we, we really see the nervous temperament um, and the idea of the ner- nervous temperament, um, emerge. Um, and that idea comes, or at least is popularized by a famous English doctor named George Cheney. Um, George Cheney um, argued very persuasively uh, that people of good breeding um, and what he called high sensibility. Um, would be expected to come down with a number of nervous disorders like hysteria, hypochondria, and the vapors. And what he argued was that people who had this good breeding had nerves that were too lax, feeble, or unelastic, um, and that these nerves bred pathology. But the nice thing about having these nerves, this nervous system, is that it could also transmit sense. It could make somebody a quick thinker and it could provide the most lively imagination. Um, And so I think the classic... The classic historical character with high sensibility is Marion Dashwood from *Sense and Sensibility*, uh-huh. Jane, Jane Austen's character. And if you remember, Marion Dashwood, you know she loved she loved the arts, and she she really um, thought a lot about creativity. Um, and uh, but she, and of course, she you know she was she was she was she was, she was upper class, but. You know, she almost dies in a rainstorm. So she has she has this sort of plastic nervous temperament, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> she has she has that sharp wit, but that makes her very prone to disease. Um, and that was very much uh, because she had these thin, weak nerves. Now, people who were working class had a different kind of nervous system. They had a kind of thicker, ropeier nerves and. The advantage there is that they didn't get sick as often and they could work uh, much more harder. They could engage in more physical labor, but it also meant that sense was transmitted more slowly. So what you see is the nervous system becomes very um, uh, gendered, highly gendered, Uh and highly classed in the 18th century. And it's also really racialized because Africans, of course, have these – are thought to have these thick, uh, ropey nerves in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why, of course you can, you know, it, it was, it legitimated putting them out in, in, uh, hot fields and uh-huh. so forth, because they couldn't, they couldn't feel the hot sun. So that's where this sort of biology comes from. And this is where this idea of the nervous temperament comes from. So that I think answers the question of why I went back so far. Mm-hmm. Um, So the nervous temperament emerges in the 18th century, and then we see it again in the 19th century, even as Victorians start to come up with with actual physiological theories about migraine. Um, But then things start to change in the 20th century. Um, The 20th century is a really important time for migraine. Largely because there is a, uh, a neurologist named Harold G. Wolf mm-hmm. uh, who emerges, who is really um, interested in designing experiments that can observe the physiology of migraine and process. And he does all of these really neat things, really creative experiments to sort of make visible what's going on when a migraine is happening in the brain. So one of the things he does is he, he sets up all these kinds of mechanisms so he can actually demonstrate that during a migraine, the vascular system is expanding and contracting. Uh, and because of those experiments, he becomes known as the father of modern headache medicine. Mm-hmm. But Harold G. Wolf is also a really important figure in psychosomatic medicine. Uh-huh. Um, and he had, even though he had this real interest in the pathophysiology of migraine, he's also really interested in the psychology of migraine. So he really believes that migraine is uh, physical, but he also really believed that the origin of migraine was in the psyche. Mm-hmm. So he starts looking at migraine personalities and, um, and this becomes a really pivotal moment in migraine. Um, and the migraine personality that he develops, uh, sounds a bit like this. I'm going to read you a quote from, from one of, uh, from Wolf's textbook on migraines. He says the migraine personality is quote, individual with migraine aims to gain approval by doing more than and better than his fellows through application and hard work and to gain security by holding to a stable environment. Um, now this migraine personality is, um, it's a little bit like what we would now think of as a type A personality, mm-hmm. very uptight. Uh, and I think it's important to say here that Harold Wolf himself had migraine. And he was working in uh, Cornell in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And his clientele were well-to-do businessmen. And I think you can see that his migraine personality really reflects this clientele. And in fact, his advice to his uh, patients is um, that they they take a break every day in their job and they play a game of squash. Uh Uh-huh. And have you know just relax a little bit, which is of course what he does. Uh-huh. Uh, so there are a couple of interesting things about this. One is that the migraine personality in the mid twentieth century is really very masculine, mm-hmm. um, and um, and and kind of like the organization man, really. Uh-huh. Um, you know, really this sort of uptight, you know, man in a suit and tie. Um, but one of the one of the things that I found is even though. W- the, when, when the migraine personality becomes applied to a woman, you start to really see some of these uh, more hysterical stereotypes that we're accustomed to. Um, so Wolf was not particularly interested in talking about women patients. And he did talk about women patients. The very little bit he did, he would talk about them as frigid, um, as sexually repressed. But it, that was just like a tiny little bit of his writing. Some of his colleagues talked more about women with migraine and, and spent, spent their time applying the migraine personality to women. Um, one in particular was a doctor called Walter Alvarez. Um, and when he described women with migraine, um, he, he essentially argued that women with migraine were those who are unable to accept the female role, particularly when it came to sex. Uh huh. So one thing, this is a quote from something that Alvarez says. Uh, he s- describes women with migraine like this: "quote It is an axiom with me that whenever a woman is having three attacks of migraine a week, it means that she is either psychopathic or else she is overworking or worrying or fretting or otherwise using her brain wrongly." Wow. Yes, yeah, <laughs> Alvarez is, is is sort of uh, gold <laughs> for those <laughs> of you. Who, who deal with, with quotes, uh, he has this other, um, passage where he says that when his women patients, uh, come into his office and describe, uh, say that they're concerned about their marriage, he would advise them to just relax and accept their husbands because they must be married to an angel to put up with their illnesses. Oh. And then he says their migraines must just have just disappeared because they never show up to his office again. Oh. <laughs> I love al my favorite he's my favorite migraine character that's fantastic um now by the nineteen seventies, there really is a huge investment in psychiatric explanations of uh migraine um, and in some cases, doctors are talking about migraine as completely psychiatric so in the words of one doctor um, migraines quote permit hostility and irritability displays within the limits permitted by the excuse. I have a headache. So the 1950s, you really see this turn towards the psychiatric, which reaches a peak in the 1970s. Um, And I think that history really helps understand, helps help me understand anyway, why it was so important for today's neurologists to distance themselves uh, from, from their mentors, really. Those right. were the, those were the people who, who had trained them. Uh, and they really felt like, uh, psychosomatic medicine had let them down. You know, I mean, at a certain point, you know, this, this stuff sounds a little bit ridiculous. Uh huh.
2: Well, let's turn then to the, to those headache specialists, um, today, um, in chapter two, It's All in Her Brain, in which you show that contemporary headache specialists, um, have a particular way, as you said, of telling the story of recent history of migraine, that they see a recent decisive turning point and even a revolution in migraine in the so-called age of the brain. So, What is this headache specialist version of this recent story and how does it sort of cast a new meaning on migraine?
3: So their story is that um, there have been all kinds of advances in migraine in the last 30 years. And of course, that's true. (laughs) There have been there's been genetics research. There have been new pharmaceuticals or at least one new class of drugs that has been developed to target migraine. There have been brain imaging studies that uh, can visualize migraine in process. Um, and this has allowed a new model, a new neurobiological model for migraine to develop. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so this idea, there's there's this idea out there uh, among neurologists that the migraine brain, as they call it, uh-huh. um, is going to... Is, is, is a kind of objective, allows them to talk about migraine as an objective disease, as a specific disease, uh, as, as something that is, is real, that's legitimate, mm-hmm. um, that's going to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And one of the most interesting things that I discovered when I went to go study uh, headache doctors was that they felt just as stigmatized and just as delegitimated as mm-hmm. their patients. I hadn't expected that. Uh-huh. There was a real courtesy stigma among them. And so they had a really big stake in trying to get people to take migraine seriously because, of course, they had built their career around studying migraine and treating migraine patients. So they really wanted uh, this new model of migraine to attract more resources.
2: Um, You also go on to kind of explain in this chapter how the migraine brain becomes a gendered brain. Could you talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, so so I, one of the things I do in this chapter is I, I ask whether or not this idea about the migraine brain has accomplished what they want it to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And I argue that the migraine brain inadvertently, um, ends up reifying some of the gendered stereotypes that they're trying to get away from. So This idea, the neurobiological model for migraine is based on this idea that people who have migraine have a sensitive brain. Um, And the idea is that anybody who has migraine, I'm sorry, anybody who has a brain, most of us, Uh um, can get a migraine if their brain is, uh, if if they experience enough triggers. So, for example, if you drink a lot, you're going to have a hangover the next day and a hangover is quite a bit like a migraine. Uh, but a person who gets migraines and a person who gets a lot of migraines are more sensitive. They have a lower threshold to much smaller irritants like alcohol or certain foods, sleep irregularities, stress, perfumes, weather changes and hormonal mm-hmm. shifts. Uh, and so this has led them to understand the per- the per- person with a migraine, uh, as having a brain that's sensitive in the popular literature. The shorthand for this is a person having a migraine brain. um, now, the migraine brain is really becomes very interesting because the, the migraine brain uh, becomes sort of like its own entity. Uh-huh. And it, it started to take on some of the personality characteristics um, of a person with migraine. So, the example that I draw on in the book um, is, comes from a, a really popular self help book by Carolyn Bernstein called The Migraine Brain. Uh-huh. As she, when she describes the migraine brain, um, and I'm going to quote here from her book, as, quote, as high maintenance as they come, like a thoroughbred racehorse or diva, it's hypersensitive, demanding, and overly excitable. It usually insists that everything in its environment remains stable and even keeled. It can respond angrily to anything it isn't accustomed to or doesn't like. Uh-huh. A migraine brain is always on alert, ready to overreact to any stimulus it finds displeasing. And I really think this is amazing because what's happened here is the brain has taken on many of the personality characteristics of the migraine personality. Yes. She is a diva and I'm calling her she because that's how it reads to me. Mm -hmm. She's hypersensitive and overly excitable. The migraine brain has a lack of rationality. It overreacts to anything it finds displeasing. And this all reads as feminine. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the migraine brain, I think, is very seductive. It um, it seems like it is placing agency outside of a person, right? It's saying, mm-hmm. like, you're not high-maintenance. Your brain is uh-huh. high um, But we live in this, our Western culture as, as ascribes personhood to brains. Uh So what does it mean to say your patient isn't high maintenance, the brain is high maintenance? And I think there's a slipperiness there um, that does not serve headache medicine well. Yeah. I think another point that you make so well is that
2: to point toward the brain in um, a desire to be objective doesn't remove the brain from the realm of culture or discourse it doesn't free it from all of those associations or meanings as they circulate in the world it's never unmetaphorical or ametaphorical i think you do a really good job of explaining that in the book
3: thank you and i think i think it's really important and, and in fact the reason why neurologists now really want to use the brain to talk about migraine is precisely because it's such an important cultural symbol of of, of scientific advancement of technological sophistication. Yeah. So the brain is, is very much, uh, Kind of soaked in these in these cultural meanings,
2: and as you show in chapter three, then you ter- when you turn to the migraine community online on the internet in 2012, that the migraine community there also embraces this notion of the migraine brain. So, how does the idea of the migraine brain circulate on the internet during this period that you study?
3: So, I think that migraine advocates are very much the way you know feel very much the way I. When I heard that I had a neurobiological disease, they're delighted. It's legitimating the people. um, First of all, I should say that most advocacy for migraine exists on the internet. And I think for very good reason, Mm -hmm. the people who are advocating for migraine by and large are very disabled. They're on the much more severe end of the spectrum of migraine. Um, and the internet has really enabled them to talk to each other, right? These are people who have, um, a difficult time getting out of the house. Many of them are on disability. And so the internet has enabled advocacy, which they could not have participated in before. Um, and I think they really experience migraine as a, as a full body disease, as something that's highly disabling, um, that, uh, affects them from head to toe, and so this concept of the migraine brain as something that's a neurological disease helps legitimate this overwhelming disability that they're experiencing. And it's something that they feel is tangible, that they can take to their friends, their family, their employers, and they can say, look, I have a disease, it's as real as diabetes, it's as real as Parkinson's, this is this is something that's severe and that's significant. And so they embrace that even as they complain that they are oppressed by the very highly gendered stereotypes that circulate about migraine, the kind of hysterical, neurotic um, uh, stereotypes that they, they can't escape. And so one of the things I point out is that you know, they're not really escape. The migraine brain isn't really helping them escape these stereotypes. Uh I completely understand why they're embracing the migraine brain. I completely understand why it's so seductive, but I think they need to, um, also see that it's, it's not, I don't think it's, it's going to be the solve. I don't think it's going to be the the solution to the problem of cultural meaning,
2: uh,
3: uh, that, that they're trying to deal with. Uh Uh Yeah.
2: Um, uh, let's move on to um, Chapter 4, which you call Gendering the Migraine Market. And, um, again, you kind of turn to a different set of stakeholders in um, migraines in the culture. And you look at the explicit marketing strategies used by pharmaceutical industry to sell migraine drugs. Again, really fascinating chapter. So could you tell us a little bit about how you would characterize some of their um, their uh, marketing strategies, and according to their visions and interventions, what kinds of women suffer from migraines?
3: Sure. So I think all of us are familiar with uh, the typical migraine advertisement. It is almost always a white, um, middle-class woman, or, or even somebody a little wealthier, very well made up. Um, with her hands, if she's in pain, her hand is pressed up against her head. Mm-hmm. Um, and if she's not in pain, there's a kind of aftershot shot. One assumes that she's had her medicine um, and she's, <laughs> she's, you know, sort of on the beach or, you know, playing with children or so forth. And there's this, there's this pretty um, reliable, feminized narrative that goes along with these, with these advertisements. Um, when she's in pain, She is very often uh, not taking care of children, whether or not it's her job. For example, she may be a nurse. Um, So she's her back is is uh, turned away from all the babies she's supposed to be taking care of. Mm -hmm. Um, And but more often it's because she's a mother. So she's not taking care of her child. Now, I talked to some pharmaceutical executives about how they think about their advertising, and they said that in focus groups, women with migraine talk about guilt and that that is something they try to elicit in their advertising strategy. So, uh, and you can really see that, um, coming up in, in these, in these advertisements. Um, but what I talk about in this chapter is the way in which this narrative, um, constructs migraine as something that only affects a particular kind of person, mm-hmm. right? It's, 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 it's the, the white fairly well to do, uh, woman. We don't see a lot of men. Um, we certainly don't see a lot of people of color. Um, we don't see people who, um, who are working class or who don't have money. That's not who the advertising is, is uh-huh. marketing. Um, and we also see, Medication working now. All of this makes right. sense in the context of the pharmaceutical industry, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're trying to sell a product, um, but there there are a couple of problems with this. One is that the pharmaceutical industry is really the only part; is they're the main funders of research in migraine and they're the pretty much the only people putting out any kind of public health messaging about migraine. Mm-hmm. So most of what we learn about migraine comes from this advertising. Right, right. So they they, they, become a very default, a very important de facto source of information. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what happens is that we end up, people end up thinking that migraine is really easy to treat, which okay. is it's not. And that migraine is the kind of condition that really only affects people, um, in a kind of non-serious way, Mm -hmm. you know, as a kind of lifestyle disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and also it's not a very accessible, these, these treatments aren't very accessible, right? They're very expensive. Um, and so it's a market that's pretty much closed off, uh, to anybody who, who can't afford the drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that the pharmaceutical industry, um, in some ways, creates the market um, creates creates the population uh, that of, of people who have migraine be- just out of out of the, the market that it's trying to target. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's just fascinating. And I think your point about the advertisements, not only as rhetorical fodder, but more importantly, as important de facto public health messages in a climate where there's not a lot of attention paid to migraine is really such a a good point. I think one of the things that your work shares with um, a lot of other really important contemporary work about pain, like Keith Wailu's work and Joanna Burke's, is that the question of pain is often, when we take it as a historical object or a cultural object of study, is that we start to see that some people's pain matters more than others. And that in Chapter 5, Men in Pain, you kind of ask the provocative question, what might headache medicine look like if migraines were male, and I think you come up with a really interesting set of um, explorations based on examining cluster headaches and their different fate. Could you talk a little bit about that? What is, it? by the way, can we start? What is a cluster headache?
3: Sure. So, <clears throat> cluster headache is a is a kind of headache disorder. Sometimes it, it it's not a migraine. Sometimes people think it's it's just a migraine that men get. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. Okay. It, it's, a, it's 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 a, it's a it's a very painful headache disorder that is more prevalent among men than among women. Um, and it is, um, it shares some features in common with migraine. Uh, some of the treatments are the same. And of course it's, it's neurological. Um, but the pain is, um, a little bit different. It's shorter lasting. It lasts 15 to 90 minutes instead of migraine last four, four hours to much longer. Um, but the pain is, Incredibly severe, like unbelievably severe, um, and um, and people with uh, cluster headache are said to engage in all kinds of physical activities when they have their pain, and um, they have they have slightly different autonomic symptoms than people with migraine. The reason why I thought cluster headache was a really good comparison with migraine was because it gave me a window into understanding how we could talk about pain in a different way, Mm -hmm. in a way that was perhaps not so feminized. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, cluster headache is spoken about in an incredible, in a Mm hyper-masculine way. Um, So, um, cluster headache, for one thing, uh, until very recently, doctors thought that men got cluster headache far more than women, something like 10 times Mm -hmm. often. 10 times as often as women and more recent research suggests that's just not true. It's maybe like two times as often. Um, but, uh, but there is, um, still a tendency among doctors to talk about cluster headache using very, very masculine, uh, language. Um, so for example, um, people with cluster headache are, um, talked about, uh, in terms of um, this is for example, that they're so cluster pain is so excruciating. It brings even the strongest men to their knees. Um, rather migraine people with migraine are talked about retreating into dark, quiet rooms, whereas cluster patients are told that they can't sit, uh, sit or lie still. They pace rock or drive their fists into painful area. They do pushups ups. Um, and um, and I thought that was really interesting, so I really wanted to trace that masculinized language back in time to see where it started and how it might be driving research mm-hmm.
2: So where does you think that this ends us up so if, if this is where we are with these two you know hi- highly gendered models of headaches associated with two diagnoses, um, where does that leave us?
3: So in headache medicine, um, cluster headache is a is, is much, taken much more seriously than migraine, Within, with, and that has, I think, quite a bit to do with gender. Mm-hmm. Um, it has, there are other factors involved as well, but I think that gender plays a strong role in that. Mm-hmm. Out there in the world, talking to cluster patients, I think cluster patients still experience quite a bit of delegitimation, mm-hmm. And one of the things they complain about is that cluster headache is very often conflated with headache or migraine. And that seems to upset them more than anything. Uh Uh, And I think in large part that's because headache and migraine are gendered feminine. Uh And so they say things like they don't want to be thought of as a wuss or a sissy, all of this kind of feminized language. Uh, And so they, when they talk about and they try and describe their pain to somebody else, they always draw on this kind of masculinized language to legitimate their pain, and I think that's really interesting as well. So I wouldn't say that the masculinity of cluster headache has closed legitimacy deficit for them, but it does give them a resource uh, to engage with and to and to work with uh, when talking about headaches. The problem with cluster headache really is that it gets confused with these other highly feminized disorders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: toward the end of the book, um, you ask two really important questions. One is a normative one. How ought headache advocates go about removing the stigma of migraine and cluster headache? And if neurobiology can't save headache disorders, what hope is there for people in pain? Um, let's take the first one first. Um, what do you think headache advocates ought to do to try to continue to confront stigma?
3: That's a great question. I'm not sure I have a great answer, Mm -hmm. but I will try. Um, I think that headache advocates need to change the public, what what the public imagines when they think of who has migraines. Uh And I think that there are a couple of opportunities to do this. Uh, particularly with the with concussions being in the news, mm-hmm. so the number one symptom that is uh, coming back with with vets um, is actually migraine. Uh-huh. because that is, um, that, that's a, a kind of symptom of the, the, the brain traumas um, that are coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and also uh, the attention to people playing football and hockey and so forth. I think might bring attention to the, the migraines that are um, associated with um, concussions. And then uh, the second
2: question was, Oh, we can go to, I'll repeat it for you. Yeah. So if neurobiology can't save headache disorders, what hope is there for people in pain? What hope do you think there is? And if we're um, coming up against the sort of panacea of the brain and the age of the brain is, is showing um, is wearing at the edges. What hope is there do you think for people suffering out there?
3: Well, I do think that the advocacy is the way mm-hmm. forward um, and there is increasing advocacy around migraine. Uh, the issue is that people really do have to come forward. They have to be able to talk about their migraine. They have to be able to and, and willing um, to, to act. Uh, so there are just in the, the last few years have been a number of really important efforts uh, to lobby legislators and policymakers on really important issues around funding for migraine um, and 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 other really important policies around migraine, for example, making migraine a real disability, uh, a named disability uh, for social security yes, disability yes. insurance uh, and those those things are really important, and I think that advocacy is 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 what 's really going to alter how migraine is understood yeah
2: absolutely. Um, as we're getting toward the end of um, our time together, I'd like to kind of turn to the future. Uh, a former colleague of mine, Michael Martone, um, always said that um, what authors do when they write another when they finish a book is that they write another book. <laughs> That's kind of the job that we're in. So, what are you working on now? What's next for you, and where are
3: you headed? Um- So all along, um, I have been working on um, a completely separate topic uh, called forbidden knowledge, Uh which is knowledge that we collectively have decided is too sensitive, dangerous, or taboo to pursue. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: Now, it turns out that cluster headache patients are engaging in a really provocative form of forbidden knowledge. um, And that's that they've discovered that psychedelic drugs can, in some cases, prevent their clusters from happening. So what I've been doing is really actually still working with cluster headache patients, looking into their process of making this discovery. And that's been really fascinating and really fun for me. Uh Uh-huh. Fantastic. Well, Joanna, thank you so much for
2: joining us today. I loved hearing you talk about your book and your work and look forward to reading more from
3: you in the future. Thank you so much, Monique.